And welcome everybody to another episode of the Mind Sculptors Podcast. I am your host, Callahan, and we have a, a great show lined up for you today. Got a, a new uh, new sub-series that we're premiering today uh, where it, we're calling it The Mono White Guys. Uh, and it's where we sit down. Uh, we kind of did this a few weeks ago where we sat down with uh, Michael Levine, my uh, esteemed guest, Dr. Michael <laughs> Levine. How you doing today? Good. How are you doing? Good. Uh, our uh, resident philosophy uh Nerd fellow, I don't know. That's what your BA's in, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Carl's um, the mono white guy, as he's known. How you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Great. And like I've been saying, he's not a Batman villain, but he is a bit of a madman. Is uh, Cobblepot Cobble? How you doing? Doing well. And awesome. I'm a white guy, but you are a white guy. <laughs> uh, look, amongst the amongst the four of us, I am the only non-white guy. Right. That yeah, it's funny that the, the mono white guy is the the not white guy. Right. <laughs> oh man, it's well, just thank a you mask. All. Yeah, thank you all for for uh, sitting down. I'm really excited to uh, start digging into this stuff. And I think the the thing we wanted to talk about first is we've talked a lot about uh, in our discussions with both Charles and Michael uh, a lot about stacks, how to play better, especially around with stacks, because that's what you know a lot of what you're playstyles tend to center around. Uh, so today we're going to be just talking about something that uh, Michael and myself are probably the two that are the most like not into rule of law of the four of us. Uh, I hate rule of law. I do too. I viciously <laughs> hate rule of law, but I play decks that really want to play rule of law. Yeah. Um, so we're going to be talking about rule of law today and uh, really what it entails, how to play with it, all that stuff. And so to kick things off, um, Michael, as somebody who, you know, we've talked about this in the past, how you really didn't want to play rule of law for a long time in Heliod. Why are the reasons people would play rule of law in their decks? Yeah, so I was definitely the kind of person who did not want to play rule of law. You know, it's hard to not play in any kind of white deck like either sworn canonist, but I was super against the rule of law. But over time I warmed up to playing it in my deck, not the experience of playing it. I still find it somewhat painful sometimes, but you play it because it is really probably the single most powerful stacks effect in the format at the, at the current time. Um, and I say that at the current time, because it really benefits from the fact that almost every uh, so-called combo deck, which is like the majority of the other decks, the non-stack decks, want to cast multiple spells almost every turn. If it possible. used to be the Kingmaker card, right? Yeah, it, well, it's, it's, it's funny. When I first started playing Heliod, it was the Flash meta, and everyone thought of it as this weird thing of like, you can't play Rule of Law, because then there's just going to be piled up flashes on the stack, and the last stack, the last flash wins. Um, but that's actually, you know, the flash meta is where I learned that I actually needed to play that effect more because it, you know, there is this fear that you will cause a, uh, an issue where no one can respond to the last win con on the stack, but more often than not, people sit and get anxious and don't do anything because no one wants to be the first one to move. And that is a <laughs> great situation to be in when you are a Heliod deck. Um, and so I kind of started to warm up to it 
when I realized I could use that to my advantage um, and kind of get some incremental advantage on the board by playing my sorcery speed stacks pieces that make it even scarier to try to do anything with the rule of law and play. Um, and still, I, I feel like, you know, there's other stacks pieces that are really powerful in our format. Everyone's on dock side. So obviously null rod is really good. Um, but rule of law is the one stacks piece that is very powerful against the combo decks. And you can really build your deck to not be too punished by, uh, if you put some effort in it, it's hard to build null rod decks. It's, uh, not as hard, but still hard to buy to build like a cursed totem deck. But you can build a rule of law deck, um, and it, it really is a card you can you can build around. So I warmed up to it. I think it is it is definitely the best stacks piece to build a deck around in the meta right now. Right, and Charles, as far as stuff that this is doing really good at stopping when we're talking about why we want to play it, I mean it definitely makes ad nos strategies much more difficult, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it's a lot to what Michael is saying. It's probably one of the most powerful uh, stacks piece at the time. I'm actually so uh, while you and Michael hate playing rule of law, I'm actually not uh, a fan nor uh, animus towards playing rule of law. I just kind of look at it as like you know any other stacks piece. Uh, it's something that I've played with it and I played without and. You know, I've been quoted in other forums and discords saying this, that you need to think of a game plan beyond just rule of law. Like things don't just begin or end with rule of law. And I, uh, I was the one who was playing rule of law during the flash meta. Uh, and I top forward at the playing with power event, playing a rule of law deck. Uh, and yeah, what Michael said happens a lot. Uh, and it's really funny because usually, you know, people will respond to uh flash uh nobody ever thinks that the that the person playing white is going to have a response so you'll have like you know the other flash players flash in something and then you surprise them with a containment priest and they're like oh man (laughs) (laughs) yeah i i never thought it was such a bad idea like everyone said it was to play rule law in the flash meta i just think conceptually it made people feel scared it wasn't like really as bad as people said it was. It was really hard in decks that wanted to be proactive uh, to commit to a rule of law strategy. That's true. Yeah. Because you spend your turn developing. Right. Yeah. And then you would just have people who were trying to develop their turns. And then the Thrasius Timna deck at the table just goes, okay, uh, everybody's cast spell. Cool. Flash. Mm-hmm. And that was like, the thing, and you saw it kind of frequently, but I, I think that was kind of the the fear, right? Yeah, there was yeah. a lot of uh, th- that. That was the pattern or the play pattern to counterplay that, and uh, people who who often play in that, like that, that was just a tricky thing. Like you had to be aware of it, and I think that some players learned how to play against that play pattern. Whereas I think for most players, like the greed overtakes them, right? It's like, I, I, I gotta develop, I gotta, you know, or else I'm going the, the fear of falling behind. This is really funny how Michael brings up about this idea of like, you know, you play incremental advantage because you have the counter spell in your hand and you see this Heliot player is like, Oh, you know, I'm going to play this, uh, uh, scrapyard recombiner. And they're like, 
well, I don't want to spend a counter spell on that. That's like a 0.5 advantage to like my one card, one to one advantage, right? And you make these small incremental adjustments, and over time, it's like, well, I really needed multiple answers for each of these incremental advantage fees, but I only have a one to one trade. I mean, my favorite thing is for someone to be scared to cast their counter spell because someone else might flash over it. Mm-hmm. That was like a huge advantage in the flash meta. No mm-hmm. one's countering Heliod spells because they need to save their <laughs> counter for the flash. It was, it was great cover for me. It was, I, I really liked it. Something that's, that's interesting about all of this is the, the difference that you have in the, I'll say the correct way to play rule of law based on the metagame. So when, when flash was legal, you could win with a single cast and that was why you have the conundrum that we're discussing right now, where currently the fastest way to win still requires two casts, which is why rule of law is so powerful. Um, I would say that during the flash metagame, you rule of law was, was good if you preceded it with Grafdigger's Cage or mm-hmm. Mind Rest Sensor or Rest in Peace. You have mm-hmm. to have one of those pieces in first and then you put the, the rule of law on top of it where now you've got two layers of protection. So you are stopping the, the efficiency and the economy of the Storm players or the fast combo players and you are plugging up the hole where somebody can just play a flash and just win fast forward to now because of the fact that there is no single cast win con you don't have to have a preamble before playing your rule of law you can play your rule of law you know your your deafening silence turn one and there's no there's no fear there's no risk that somebody is just going to combo off because they you know can't get those two casts in i will say that is goto erasure there is a one card with con that's true that is true <laughs> um but but on a more serious note the other the thing you just brought up too you brought up deafening silence and the funny thing is since i started playing rule of law effects in heliod they have they have just printed more rule of law effects like you can now build a rule of law deck because there's a critical number of rule of law effects if you count rule of law there are uh three in historic right now um that that they've printed in the past two years yeah uh, so they, they are printing more yeah they they really they helped there be a rule of law deck by being like look at all the variations on rule of law we can actually print and i i'm looking forward to the fact that they will probably print more i can't wait for the one that is non-enchantment spells that's going to be amazing um, I'm just waiting for the uh, <laughs> asymmetric. asymmetric one. Yeah, you know oh, yeah. it's coming. It's, it's coming, coming, baby. It's coming. Yeah, I'm just worried it's going to be on like a, it's going to be like five mana, and it's just going to be like then you have to run a strategy where you're cheating it into play somehow because like five mana is a lot of mana. That's what Academy Rector's for. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm expecting it to have flash. It's going to have flash. It's an asymmetrical rule of law. It's a legendary creature, so you'll always have access to it in the command zone. Oh no. Yeah. Don't do it. I like, 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 like Caleb and I have been anticipating this. So this is actually what Elish Norn is going to be. We really right? think when they pre- print a new Elish Norn, it'll be a rule of law. Yeah, because uh, uh, this is 
this is not really uh, accessory to the rule of law discussion, but I just want this to be recorded for the record somewhere. <laughs> you look at how, like, I think Praetors are all stacks pieces. I don't think anyone's really ever pointed this out, but the way that they've been designed, like they're all monocolor creatures. And I've talked about this with second seven, Josh, uh, that the most iconic thing about the Praetors is that they are stack pieces against their own colors. Uh, Elish Norn's like minus two, minus two effect is traditionally a black effect. But the reason why it's printed in white is because in the lore and everything, she was the one that was the strongest of all the white factions in Mirrodin. And that was because of her effect. Foreign collects, you know, stifled any green like land based strategy by making you only tap your lands every other turn. Uh, Jinka taxes stripped everyone of their hands. Urbrask made all your hasty creatures come into play tapped, right? Uh, and so each of these Praetors were designed this way. And even when you look at the new designs, like the Vorinclex 2.0, it still hates on strategies particular to what Mono Green cares about. And so when, you know, Gavin Verhey said, oh, White's going to have Flash. Well, what do you think Elishnorn is going to be doing, right? <laughs> uh yeah. Well, so it could we, be hating on Flash or it could be hating on the double spell because now they love double spells in white too. Yeah, double spelling yeah. effects are really common and in, in standard right now. And that's why I'm thinking of, of an asymmetrical rule of law with Flash on Elish Norn because she's now doing the two things that white is also really good at and also the thing that like white is going to be hating on against itself. Right. I identify with this strongly. I play... 8-Whack and Burroughs Bully in other formats. I love playing two spells a turn. I also play Rule of Law in CDH. It is so painful for me. <laughs> uh, so when we look at um, Rule of Law and we were wanting to build decks with Rule of Law, um, there are really about three approaches, really two main ones, uh, but there do tend to be, there's like a, a small third that uh, I think Exactly, I play. Um, <laughs> uh, so, Cobble, when we're looking at uh, the different approaches to rule of law, what are the kind of different ways to approach building these types of decks? Well, rule of law fits into multiple different strategies, but there's basically two where rule of law is central to the strategy. And um, one of them is kind of the the Instead of turbo NAS, it's turbo rule of law, where basically you're trying to mull as aggressively as you can and try to get a rule of law effect onto the battlefield as quickly as you can. And that type of a list is something that is going to be tuned to be able to break parity with the rule of law, but also be able to find and execute rule of law as quickly as possible as a way to combat ad nauseum underworld breach and Oracle and uh, console. So that is, is, is one branch of the rule of law centric kind of archetypes. The other is where rule of law is one of many in more of a toolbox oriented stacks strategy where Instead of racing to the rule of law, you are using a cornucopia of stacks pieces to be able to deal with different t 
types of table textures and finding the appropriate piece at the appropriate time. And rule of law is the strongest of the pieces, but it's only one of the pieces. And it is layered with the other high impact stacks pieces like null rod effects, for instance. So um, that layered approach is more of a uh, it's 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 more dynamic in that it the the choices that you have to make are more dependent on what your table looks like as opposed to what rote lines you've memorized. So mm-hmm. in the one case, you're racing to try to achieve something that you've goldfished a whole bunch of times, whereas the other one is more uh, it's nuanced and requires you to be able to assess the threats that are at the table and prioritize the best pieces to proactively address those threats before they happen. Right. And then there's the third approach, which is supplementing to control, which I feel like I exclusively play right. um, where I play it in uh, things like Ojutai, uh, things like Arden Krom, where they aren't there as the cornerstones of the deck, but they're there rather as pieces that enhance the control elements. The way that I kind of described it when we were talking about it earlier is the way I look at rule of law in those decks is it fills the same role uh, for your counter spells that um, Teferi Time Raveler uh, fills in blue-white control in modern, right? Uh, uh, Michael talked about how that used to be the arcane laboratory thing, right? Yeah, Where- yeah before Rule of Law was ever printed, there was arcane lab. And I always, as a kid, remember the de- the blue decks where it was like, land your arcane lab and then cast counterspell every turn. And like, if you're really lucky, you like can do stuff with that counterspell for bid and you're just countering forever or capsize where you just bounce whatever they commit to the board every turn. Um, that's how I used to think about it until I started playing stacks especially in CDH. Cause the funny thing is that these rule of law effects aren't actually super popular outside of EDH as a stacks effect. Either shorn canonist is and deafening silences, but like spirit of the lab was the kind of card that or, or um, not spirit of the lab. I don't want rhetoric was the kind of card that was maybe a one of in like legacy death and taxes. Um, rule of law, rule of law does not get played like in really any decks. Sometimes there's like mono white prison and legacy, but I don't even know that it plays rule of law. Like definitely since deafening silence was printed, like most of those decks will just play deafening silence. Um, so it is a weird thing where it's an effect that is very much an EDH stacks effect more than it is uh, outside of our format. I know a lot of decks also like to play Archon of Ameria too. Yeah. Archon became more popular and like Nick fit, I think might play it in legacy now. Right. Or some lists. I feel like I've seen it in lists. Um, I think Archon is a special case because of the fact that it is a creature with evasion that not only applies the rule of law effect, but also applies the non-basic land entering tapped. And I think that in 1v1, that is that that second ability is perhaps more important than the first one. Right. Yeah, I mean, that second ability is so good, especially in a rule of law game, because already people are stressed about what spell they're going to cast. And now they're stressed about what mana they're going to get to be able to follow it up. 
So like that card is like the perfect hate bear in my mind. Like there is never, other than maybe Thalia, there has never been a more perfect hate bear than Arkham of Emeria. That card is just a house. It was a. Uh, it was originally the uh, Thalia Heretic Cathar's ability. I mean, it was one of the things that Watsi Design noted for as like, hey, this is actually a very powerful ability in white. I mean, like, I mean, this takes back to like the old days of magic when people were playing Kismet, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Root, I we, mean, root, root maze, if you want to be really mean to everyone. Yeah. <laughs> it feels just a small aside on the fact that the new th- new Thalia we got is just a reprint of Guardian is such a bull crap. I just have to <laughs> I was really looking forward to so a new that. amazing hate bear and yeah I mean everybody was hoping for it. Let's save this conversation for another episode because we definitely could probably should <laughs> talk about why 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 the reprint of Thalia. There are reasons obviously like mostly with Pioneer and and analyzing what goes into the building of a limited set. I think like some players have high expectations for every set that Magic the Gathering releases that isn't that doesn't have commander written on it to be made for commander, even though there are other formats yes, and such that is true. in mind. Uh but this so, is not the place to talk about right, it. At the right, right. <laughs> yeah. I, I just I was yeah. sad. I wanted a blue light folly so bad. I mean at least too. the new art's good. The new yeah, art yeah, is the new really art's good. really good. <laughs> so when we look at these two different approaches, um, when we think of like the decks, Michael, that really kind of um, are like what you think of when we talk about like what are decks that are kind of turbo rule of law when you think about them right off the top of your head? Well, I, I definitely feel like the new Win Conwest stacks decks really function as turbo rule of law decks. Um, they so I, I always think that there's like one advantage to the turbo rule of law decks and one disadvantage. Some decks just fold to turn one or turn two rule of law. And there's now enough rule of law effects printed that you don't need to maul insanely. Incre- yeah, it's not that aggressive, but you do need to maul aggressively. And that puts you at a, a situation where it's hard to keep a hand that gets you to your win con and gets you a fast rule of law. But if you're a win conless stack stack, like that's fine. You know, mm-hmm. you don't need anything else other than more stacks pieces. You're just trying to get to Kamal. You're trying to get to Elish Norn. Like I, you could, I could see an Elish Norn turbo rule of law deck. Like you're just getting to your big thing in the command zone that wins you the game. Um, so I think those are the most popular versions of the deck. I mean, if you talk about what people have been building with Oswald, that is also a deck that is technically a turbo rule of law deck. It's trying to get usually the Ether Sworn Canist as soon as possible. And there's a lot of like figuring out the ways, hands you can keep. So you always have turn two Canonist. Um, and then, you know, there are definitely people who take decks that aren't really turbo rule of law, but play them that way because because that's another thing you know if you have fast mana and all the rule of law effects you can choose to take your deck that's not really designed to be turbo rule of law and play it that way um Mm -hmm. so like i know a lot of people like to play heliod where they aggressively mull to rule of law effects um i personally don't play it that way but i i know there is quite a quite a number um yeah you know i would say that there are the dedicated turbo 
rule of law decks, and then every other rule of law deck can be played as a turbo deck if you really want to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is funny true. when you uh, when you talk about like how a lot of people can't handle a turn one rule of law. It immediately makes me think of the semifinals of uh, the MLC, where Pongo's sitting in fourth place on Ikrakram, and uh, Rebel just goes turn one Archon. And the entire Pongo did not get to play that game of magic at all. And and in the practice that I did with Rebel, I did a turn one rule of law in that practice match. And we had that discussion. You know, mm-hmm. if there's a turn one rule of law, there are some decks in that pod, specifically Ikrakram, that will not be able to to, to do anything. Um, right. And and I mean, it's even better if it's Archon of Emeria because that just puts everyone so impossible. Everybody's land and mana is now way back. Too. Yeah, all the fetches, the people who have these greedy mana bases that play like one of each basic and really need to fetch their their dual lands. It's like so painful. Yeah, um, it really sucked for all those guys who were playing multicolored decks. Too bad there wasn't anyone there, you know, just playing like a mono white deck in that pod. <laughs> yeah. That being lost said, like, to a Hail Mary. <laughs> uh, oh my god. It was it was so good. I mean, I I just love the fact that that Rebel mentioned this in her video and she and you talked about this in her practice runs with Goblin Bombardment of like yeah. this is the card that will save me. And and in that game, you get you guys couldn't hear it in the audio, but in the actual game, I I unexpectedly absent targeting Goblin Bombardment and Pongo and Ashani were both was like why is he targeting that? And Rebel's like, you you have to stop him. You have to stop him. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but like, this is why the Turbo Rule of Law decks exist because that right. game put one deck that is a very powerful deck completely out of the game by getting that that early Rule of Law effect. So right. I, I do think that it makes sense, um, and that strategy will only get stronger as they print more Rule of Law effects. Right? Like that is a. A, a strategy that becomes easier and easier to play the more and more cards have that text on them. Um, and now we're kind of at the cusp of, you know, you have a hundred card deck and there's like seven, six effects that passes rule of effects. That's a little sketchy to mull into it for me, but mm-hmm. you can, you can do it. Yeah, there are, um, there are ways that, uh, players have built their decks now to like Oswald is a, is a prime example where you could just tutor for Ether Sworn Canonists, and that's like a reliable function where it feels like you kind of have a rule of law in the command zone. I think like one important thing about like a lot of the turbo rule of law decks that I've seen is that uh, they do play other stack pieces. And so the difference between this and the layered approach. It's kind of like what Michael was saying about like, you know, I'm not necessarily looking for a rule of law in my opening hand. Uh, whereas in the turbo rule of law decks, I think the heuristic that you're running when you're doing your mulligans and when you're doing your deck building is how do I streamline the whole entire process to make it so that every game consistently, there is a rule of law in play. Uh, whereas in the layered approach, it could be, you know, I'm playing my games and I might play a game where rule of law was just never played. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, and you know, I actually prefer my games when no rule of law was ever played. Like for me, <laughs> if they could give me twelve copies of Blind Obedience, I'd be incredibly happy because for me, that's the effect I want. Turn I just one or need, turn two every game. I just need more two mana counter spells that are like effective, and I, I'll be happy. 
Because that's 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 literally what it comes down to for me when I look at Ojitai is the density of counter spells that you have to have um, to like we, we, we talked about it this a little bit a few weeks ago um, in our episode with Ian um, when we were discussing humility is like the density of uh, counter spells that you have to play in order to play the same level of board police that control in 60 card plays is just absurdly higher than any other type of card. Um, and so for me, I just, I don't want them to print more rule of laws, just print better counter spells. Yeah, I think more counter spells. An interesting, or not counterpoint to that, but an interesting outworking of that is that we're seeing, or at least some people are seeing a resurgence of counterbalance and mm-hmm. Sensei's divining top, where mm-hmm. rather than needing to be able to win a counter war or, you know, be able to keep your hand stocked with counter spells and be able to cast those counter spells to be able to disrupt opponents, being able to just finagle the top of your library and respond to things that are happening without mm-hmm. performing any casts. I mean, even, even stuff like, um, uh, patron wizard, and and so on, where, yes. where where you have a you know creature oriented counterspell basically that doesn't actually require a cast and can only be interacted with with stifle, um, those types of effects with a rule of law right. as support uh, become very very strong because you can. One of the things about rule of law while it's in play is that people can't protect their spells um, unless they have a Allosaurus Shepherd or a Destiny Spinner or Vexing Shusher or the New Hermit. And, or support from the board. <laughs> right. Right. Um, but being able to attach counterspell-like abilities to non-spell cards is... Uh, extremely powerful under a rule of law because of the presumption that people can't protect their spells. Right. I mean, that's why I always really liked order of the sacred torch. Like, yeah, you only need to counter one black spell a turn under rule of law. It's great. I mean, most people don't YOLO and add Nas into it. Not that I haven't seen someone make that mistake. Um, Right. They're like, wait, what is that card? Yeah, <laughs> what? yeah. I mean, it's a feel bad. I've cut it from Heliot since then. I always want it to be back. It's just three mana needs a turn to be on. Feels awful in the current mana, but like, oh, once it's active, a counter spell on a stick is is a really powerful card. Yeah. That's why Chalice of the Void is so powerful in other formats, and you can use it in our format. Is that a thing that takes no actions and counters things, costs no mana, doesn't need you to draw more cards. It's just there for you to use. It's so powerful. Yeah. Um, well, and that, and that brings an interesting um, talking point into, you know, when you're talking about uh, playing with rule of law. So we've built this deck. We're playing whatever strategy we want to do with that. You know, and we're talking about how we want to play with it. You know, Charles, what is it that we're doing when we're trying to play with these with these cards two words it's called action economy <laughs> uh <laughs> the, the 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 paradigm that most players have uh and uh like 
There is not a single card that I want anyone to be thinking about when playing with Rule of Law. It's very adaptive. And this is a thing that I think like shit that I would like drill into someone's head because like I could be playing a casual game and someone else just casually drops out of Rule of Law. Like I, I recall this one game before where me and someone swapped decks and they were playing one of like my mono white stacks decks and I was playing like their their um, Esper wizard tribal deck and they played a rule of law being like oh you know i i i know that my deck can't beat a rule of law meanwhile i wizard cycle this vidalcan aether mage to tutor for urtai uh wizard <laughs> and and he's like uh why this is like i thought i thought you were gonna find your win con or something or like a zombie or whatever and i was like no no you you played a rule of law right i'm, I'm gonna play my counter spell on a stick um <laughs> And, and and the thing is, is that I think that for most players, and you can see this a lot with casual players, uh, and just observe your games often when you play with a lot of players, how they treat their card economy and how this differs from an action economy. Action economy details your player actions. It's a term that originated from, I think, MOBA games with like, you know, uh, players who play League of Legends of how many actions you can commit within, you know, 60 seconds or something like that. And in this case, you want to, the time frame is not an actual measurement of time, but is actually a measurement of turns. How many actions can you perform in a single turn? Right. When players see rule of law, there are most of like those who are the quote unquote uninitiated <laughs> will, will, will see rule of law as, Oh, I can only do one thing a turn. But that's not really the case. You can do a lot of things in a single turn. Right. Some of them can be embodied in the form of triggered abilities from permanents you control, from things in your graveyard, from stuff that's in your hand. Right. You can reveal a card from your hand that isn't a card in play. Right. Uh, and that could be a triggered ability. Uh, you can have uh, activated abilities from permits you control. You can have activated abilities from cards in your hand, like cycling. Um, is an activated ability that you play from your hand. Ninjutsu is also another activated ability that you play from either your hand or your command zone. Right? And these are things to keep in mind about the action economy. You can do a lot, even though you can cast only one spell a turn. And when players build their decks, they will often think about their action economy like uh, like that. Uh, so they'll 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 think of their action economy like, oh, you know, I'll I'll have these cards. I'll do you know uh, card A to card B to card C in a single turn and. And, and those are my actions. Well, that's really your card economy, really, right? You fetching a land is an action as well. I think one of the biggest problems with when people play a true law that like the mistake people make, especially newer players, is that they 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 don't think about any of this right at the time. What they think is I should play my most powerful spell because it's the only spell I can play. And I think that you see it actually. This is the thing that some stacks players do when they're not that familiar playing stacks, which is what I want to bring it up. Um, if you're a Heliod player and you have a rule of law in play and you can play one spell over her turn, that doesn't mean you, should, for example, play your Ranger Captain of Eos to get your Walking Ballista because Ranger Captain is your best spell and it gets you your win con. It means you have to think of the play patterns for several turns. And if you're thinking about action economy, you have to think about how you set up more actions for yourself in the future. Um, but the biggest mistake you can make is just try to power out really powerful cards because you can only cast one spell a turn because 
the game gets infinitely more complex. It, this isn't, you know, top deck mode with Jund and Modern. This is this is a much more complicated game, and you, you really need to think about how you build up um, a kind of, I always think of it as kind of a, a machine on your board that can do all the things you need it to do, and then you can capitalize with your powerful spells. I would add to that that there are two sides to this. One is when you're playing the game, when you're piloting, and the other is when you're designing the deck. Mm-hmm. And most CEDH lists that aren't stacks lists are designed to have a high card and action economy. They are designed to have rapid, low impact, high efficiency effects that they sequence to their advantage to be able to create a win out of nowhere. And when you're designing a rule of law deck, your presumption is quite the opposite, that you are not going to have at least as far as casting is concerned, that same level of action economy. So mm-hmm. rather than running cheap cantrips or, you know, the the moxin or whatever that you that help you to accelerate, you are instead focusing more on the threats that are going to be higher impact that presume that everyone is going to be held to the same action economy. So mm-hmm. if if one player can play a Gitaxian probe and another player can play a ponder and you can play a you know Elish Norn. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> there's a significant disparity in mm-hmm. the the threat and the you know the the board presence that you're establishing when you change the assumptions the design time assumptions of what the game environment is supposed to be like and mm-hmm. that you take into account and you 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 accentuate that by you know adding Yisan and fiend artisan or you know mel or you know kadama you know to be able mm-hmm. to break parity and adding those extra abilities to have actions you know planeswalkers you know mm-hmm. Being able to take actions that don't count as as casts to be able to continue to advance your strategy more rapidly than everyone and, else. In that way, it almost is modern boomer jund, I guess, as they call it now. Because <laughs> like right, the, the idea in, in that deck was I have my Thoughtseize, my Inquisitions, I have my Lili- Liliana. We're going to have empty hands but my top decks will be better than yours. Right. You will top deck a ponder and I will top deck a blood brain elf. Mm-hmm. And I will have more actions because I will get my three, two with haste. And I will also get another spell. Right. And the deck is constructed where the card quality from now on is going to be higher for me. And for you, I'm going to get more game actions out of the cards that I'm getting. Cause I'm going to get Renin six. I'm going to get all these, these, these cards that can do things over the course of many turns. And if your deck's not constructed like that and you go up against Jund, you know, they discard the core card in your very highly efficient hand and now your your hand does nothing and they're going to just start slamming these very powerful cards. You know, it's yeah. interesting because when you talk about like the sort of action economy thing, it's interesting because a deck like Hammer Time is a deck that like 
has really good action economy through things like that because all of its pieces are onboard effects that either make it so you don't have to pay any amount of mana that as long as the card is on the battlefield, you know what I mean? So like hammer times, like that might be why hammer time is like so good right now. Right. Mm. Oh, hammer time. I wish there was a deck like this in, in CDH. I wish we had <laughs> hammer time as a deck. It is, it's exactly what you want. And I think one of these kinds of mono white decks that is kind of play to the, the interesting parts of mono white strategies, you know, it's abusing ways to get, or is would usually equipment, but you know, get things equipped without having to equip them. Put put the equipment into play off Stoneforge Mystic. You know, protect your creatures with Giver of Runes. Like use these hyper efficient evasive creatures and just make them big. Like that Michael, is such have a you mono not deck. Seen my Jeskai Stoneblade list? <laughs> Are you playing Jeskai Stoneblade? Oh god! I, there's a it's there's pretty a pretty hot. There's a playing with power episode of me playing with Arden running hammer and and uh, Arden Rebeck. Uh, it, it goes a while back, but yeah, I experimented with this was this, with this idea. I think I actually brought this up to you, Cobblepot, about it uh, about the theory behind it, and uh, I, I it, it it can only get better over time. Hopefully, like. I, I'm hoping to see more equipment like Conqueror's Flail types where it's like a build-a-bear process. Build your own hate bear, right? Make a token, right? Equi- give it an equipment and now has a hate bear effect as long as the equipment is attached to it. Right. right? right. You're going to love um, our humility uh, podcast that we did. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> our, our I mean, well, that was, that really was the, good. yeah, that was the theory for, for me building uh, uh, Nih- mono white Nahiri in the humility deck as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, I wanted to add on to, to the, to what you said, Kyle Pot, about breaking parody. Uh, Cause this is something that I think is also important to talk about with action economy is there are two different kinds of action economies. Uh, and most times I think, I think enough people who are entrenched in it know what action economy is, but they probably don't know the difference between like something like a qualitative action economy versus a quantitative action economy and when you get into like we'll, we'll get into this a little bit more later but when we talk about something like threat assessment you want to keep that in mind right for example you can have a player who's playing thrasios right uh and has like a training grounds and they're drawing a bunch of cards right but you have to remember the cards are all kind of funneled in now through the fact or like they're playing a zombie right sorry cole they're playing a zombie and <laughs> and, and they're drawing a bunch of cards right with their wizards but the thing is that uh, specifically with a zombie and not Thrasios, because you could be you could be flipping over lands and that's actually productive. Right. But you with a zombie, all the cards are embedded into your hand and you can only play one lane a turn. You can only play one spell a turn. Right. What's happening is that your card advantage becomes card velocity instead. Right. Uh, when you see someone drawing a bunch of cards, they're performing the action of drawing a card is its own action economy, but it doesn't necessarily ring any qualitative output uh, unless if something they draw into has a really large impact. Uh, and so what they're really doing when someone is trying to draw cards through a rule of law scenario is that they're not trying to. Yes, they are trying to aggregate a lot of resources for when the rule of law goes away, but more likely than not, they're trying to find a way to get rid of rule of law. And once they find it, they then prepare the next step, which is, okay, am I ready to win once the rule of law is gone? And so, yeah, I, yeah. I think that just before you move on from that point, I think that's actually a thing you have to get really comfortable with when you play rule of law. 
other people drawing cards is not always that scary. Mm-hmm. When you're when you're playing stacks in general, other people drawing cards isn't always that scary because so many of the cards have no text on them anymore. You know, <laughs> they they don't do what they would have done. And so they're they may have been individually low quality before because it was a really efficient deck, and now the cards are just junk. Um, and so I always have to convince myself this this five card hand could be two card hand effectively based on the board state. To add to that, I would say that it will partially depend on metagame, but as the turbo lists become greedier and greedier, we are seeing less and less targeted removal. And what that implies is less and less chance that a draw is going to convert into the ability to remove one of your rule of law pieces. So you can anticipate a resolved rule of law to hang around longer than it would have before just because of the prevalent techniques that people are using for how it is that they're building their decks. And to add to that, specifically with less and less removal, if someone's drawing, say that someone casts Dig Through Time, found two cards, put them into their hand, and then someone else casts Imperial Seal, right? Technically, the person who Dig Through Time has a plus two in card advantage, uh, and technically, like, or say that they did Thrasius activations and uh, or Azami activations and got seven cards into their hand. That's seven types of game actions being committed here and like a plus seven card advantage. Chances are the person who Imperial Sealed probably had the qualitatively better. Because uh, right. they got mm-hmm. the thing that they needed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so that's that's something that you want to measure. And this this extends beyond cards in hand. Let's say, you know, we're playing, we are playing a really grindy game. Right. And uh, the uh, one person, you know, the Winota player hits like a very key stacks piece, like say Sanctum Prelate, and they name two, which cuts off like both Cyclonic Rift and Winds of Abandon. Right. Uh, And meanwhile, you know, there's this Tana Bloodsower who's just connecting and making two one ones each time. Right. And maybe they have a pump up spell that made Tana into like a five five or like. Uh, a six six i'm thinking of like invigorate and she creates four one ones now right and then they play an anthem effect right they are clearly doing a lot more um specifically what 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 happens here is that the tana uh created four one ones the one ones themselves individually do not mean anything they're not worth any card value in chess they're like the pawns they do not they do not have any peace point value uh the sanctum prelate probably means a lot more has a greater impact but in terms of like threat assessment, those one ones that you play some anthem effect that become two twos, they are now clocking in with ten points of damage along with Tana, right? Uh, that and that's a very important aspect of the shift that takes place when rule of law is in play. Most people, when when you say, "How do people win games of CEDH?" will say, "Oh, you combo," you know mm-hmm. the. Most of the time, people aren't running big creatures to win the game with combat damage. It's expected that that's not something that they need to entertain and instead reinforce the game plan for comboing out as efficiently and as consistently as possible. When a rule of law comes into play, it generally causes all of the combos to be 
no longer applicable, in which case at that very moment, combat damage becomes very important. And you'll see all the people swinging in at the, the, the rule of law player, because, you know, player removal is just as good as, you know, natural order or nature's (laughs) claim. So part of your design when you know that you're going to have rule of law in effect is to anticipate that and run creatures or run means of making your creatures bigger in your list because you know that those games are going to devolve into slugfests and combat will be very, very pertinent. Yeah, that's why I love Paladin class and I love Heliod in general. One of Heliod's big advantages is that it is the combo piece in the deck, but when you get the rule of law down, it pumps your creatures too. Right. And it gives them lifelink. So you can win that race. Like I, I constantly have this argument in matches where I'm like, I understand you want to swing at me with your three, three, but like, I'm going to gain seven life next turn. <laughs> You're probably not going to win this game by player removal on me. Mm-hmm. But that person is threatening to remove the rule of law and go off. So how about you make sure that when you decide you want to remove the rule of law, the other players aren't around and you can just win. Uh, attacking me, it becomes useless. And that, that's why I think you had such a good deck for playing rule of law because it just automatically gets some of these benefits. Right. The, the, the aggro advantage. That's why I love the card like Paladin class. Great, great for us. We get to land a hard to counter rule of law and then pump our creatures and then like give things double strike and just really go ham. Like it's a great sequence to be playing in a rule of law deck. Yeah. It's really funny with how people critique white cards uh, being really bad. But then when you, but when you add in this like caveat of like, Oh, well, how's this card when there's a rule of law out and you're like, well, actually it's, it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. You can level it up and that's not, uh, a cast. So that's another action that you can take. That, right. it, it, it's amazing. And and so there are a lot of cards in Heliod that seem like maybe on individual power would be right below the bar, but the combination of playing Heliod with them and having stacks piece out, make them just significantly better. Just like having lifelink on a creature is so much better in a Heliod deck than you'd expect. Sarah ascendant becomes this like crazy thing. Cause I'm right. already trying to make the game get grindy. It's already going to grow every turn because of Heliod like a card that's already good becomes really, really amazing. Mm-hmm. And any hate bear that might have lifelink now is like something you might want to consider because that's free pumping your creatures under stacks effects. And that's, that's really good. Yeah. When we, I mean, like you could take any card as a, as a thought experiment, like go to Scryfall, find, find a card, uh, like a, like a casual commander card. Like you look at God Eternal Ketra, you look at Jazal Goldmane, you look at Adeline, right? And each of these cards, these white cards, they 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 have some sort of interesting action economy type of game plan that you want to consider and think about like how they pivot between either a quantitative advantage or a quantitative action economy to a qualitative action economy, right? Uh Oketra, you know, qualitatively changes each of your creature spell casting by creating a 4-4 now. Your spells are your creature spells are now doing more than what they're just supposed to be doing, right? Like a two mana hate bear isn't just a two mana hushbringer anymore. It's also, it also comes with a free four, four. And that sounds like a really good rate, right? 
Or when you think about like, and just even something innocuous, like, uh, like an anthem effect, like Kong Ming, the sleeping dragon that gives all your creatures plus one plus one. Right. When you think about this on a, on like a scale, like a, on a curvature, right. Uh, you play like two mana for a, uh, um, I'm trying to think like a collector oof, right? A two mana collector oof. It's a two two. Uh, and suddenly you play Kong Ming. Collector oof is now a 33. It blocks and kills Tinda, right? Suddenly your opponent spends three mana to get a two two out, and you only have to spend two mana. And now you have one mana open for that source of plowshares, for that swan song. Like you, and you now have a, a feasible blocker to stop your opponent. Right. Uh, there are other cards like these where they change the level of, of everything else that's happening. Uh, this is something, this is a terminology that I call for these class of cards and they're called inverse advantage cards. Uh, and you want to kind of think about these cards as rule setting cards. Uh, the, the, the three archetypes that fall under inverse advantage, obviously they're stacks. Uh, but the other two are more casual in their design, but you actually see them in CDH play. One of them is group hug and the other one is chaos. Uh, and iconic group hug and chaos cards that appear in CDH are like knowledge pool, uh, omen machine are, are group hug effects. And then chaos cards are like possibility storm. Right. And when you, and they are all no, rule don't, setting. Don't play knowledge pool. <laughs> yeah and so and so when you just com- play omen machine and thank yeah, me later and so and so when you come and so you want you don't want to be biased and you don't want to like default to like some heuristic of oh like that's a casual card i don't want to play it or whatever or that looks really bad or like an anthem effect which also once again is an inverse advantage card it's a card that makes your spells qualitatively better than your opponents me playing a three mana for for one playing sorry me playing a three three for one mana looks really good but in the abstract i mean we we currently in limited there's that like horse zombie thing going around that looks really good in crimson vow right and there's a reason when you think about this in in accordance with stuff like paladin class how anthems can affect that type of game plan um and so when we're talking about breaking parity that is exactly kind of what we're thinking about with breaking parity uh, is that you want to play cards better than your opponents. You want to have better game matches than your opponents, and there will be cards to facilitate that. So let me so let me kind of shift the discussion here then. Um, let's move away from how do you break parity on this? How do you, uh, as the rule of law player, uh, kind of you know build around it, play it, do all these things? Let's shift the the look at how do you play against these cards because I know uh, we've we've seen them continue to pop up. You know, Winota continues to pop up in every tournament and continues to be a very popular strategy. Heliod's a very popular uh, rule of law strategy. We're seeing other stuff with like Timna Krom or uh, not Timna Krom, Timna uh, Kumal. Uh, Tsunu Kodama, all these sorts of things. So, Kabo, when we're looking at when you're wanting to play against rule of law, uh, what is it that you're really trying to do and to, to do it effectively, I guess is what I'm getting at. The most effective mitigation for rule of law and stacks in general is Cyclonic Rift or Winds of Abandon. Um, a single spell that you can cast that will 
remove all of the hate bears, remove all of the stacks pieces in a single shot to basically pull the plug on the carefully layered and, you know, accumulated state that has been orchestrated by the stacks player um, that this is the Achilles heel of, of stacks. If they, if, if you can't stop a cyclonic rift from, from resolving, then chances are it'd be a bad day. Right. And because (laughs) of the fact that you've designed your deck to have a more deliberate, slower action economy than the other decks, because you're anticipating a game environment in which everybody else is also going to be similarly, similarly constrained. Um, it means that you're going to be your rebuild time is going to be longer than everybody else's. So your it's, it's a significant setback. Right. So people I'm, you know, people with the, the greedy fast turbo lists that are, you know, dropping cyclonic rift because they can't use it to bounce their own, um, uh, fools, oxide, oxide extortionist. <laughs> yeah. Um, so happy that's, about it. That's that's very greedy. Because and I agree with it. Incorrect. No one should play Psychonic Rift. <laughs> Everyone should cut it from their decks I, immediately. I want to make sure that this is made aware to the audience that I did not put Winds of Abandon in our show notes. That was added there by the group. I know I've been advocating really heavily for that card, but the cards, it's the real deal, man. It's I'm it's effectively that. the same thing because of the fact that it's asymmetric mm-hmm. and winds of abandon isn't a guarantee that you're going to lift all of the stacks because there's obviously going to be non-creature right. stacks pieces in play, but it's gonna it's gonna take things out because there's gonna be Draneth magistrates and there's gonna be archons of Amiria and so on and i so. think the other part of that too this is why i think it's really really good in stuff like timnacrom like blue farm is the fact that one uh winds of abandon everybody's like what they get basics tell me right now outside of these mono white mono white decks i mean hell i'm in the two color league right now um, and I guess by the time this comes out, it'll be towards the end of it. But I mean, I cast a Winds of Abandon and there were three decks at the table. And I think uh, there were 10 creatures out, five lands maybe came out. I mean, that's what the mana bases are like. So, um, you know, if Winota, who plays probably the most basics in the main deck right now, and you give them 10 lands, you were probably dying to Winota anyway, right? So... Uh, the drawback of giving them basic lands is not a drawback. Right. Uh, Especially put that when Winota is going to take longer to reassemble right. that stranglehold in the first place. So uh, in addition to wipes, which people should be running, uh, as we said before, the moment rule of law comes down, the game changes from race to the combo to race to zero life life. and people just the same way that you know you should understand that life matters to the adnos player um life also matters to the rule of law player so (laughs) um if you see the rule of law 
yes, sure, you want to start thinking of how it is that you're going to remove it. But in the meantime, you need to aggressively attack and move the needle on the rule of law players life total because that is going to be a a big part of being able to overcome what's coming because once rule of law is down or once two rule of laws are down then if you've if you don't have cyclonic rift then (laughs) there's almost no coming back from that the the counterpoint to that though is that there are some players, there's some decks that are very good at taking advantage of the fact that you've removed the rule of law and killing the rule of law player and then getting stopped by that player. And then they win feels real bad. And it so, happens all the time. There's, um, <laughs> there's, there's, I, I was going to, I have a rule about rule of law. It's the rule of rule of law. And <laughs> it is never remove the rule of law unless you will immediately win the game afterwards because well we'll talk about that in the the next segment yeah but it, it I mean, really matters my, when you're going to do combat right because like i actually think you don't go for the life total of the rule of law player immediately you eliminate the people who will be able to take advantage of you removing the rule of law that's kind of how player. i feel about it um is in my opinion you want to if you're a combo deck and you're just accruing resources and you're playing against a rule of law deck, um, you're going to have an easier one-on-one if you don't have two other combo decks at the table uh, than against the rule of law player than if the rule of law player is gone. Uh, because now it's it's open open season again, right? Uh, this is true and and that's what happened at Oktoberfest in the this year in the finals you know the game was stacked out but someone sat there twiddling their thumbs not really drawing any cards just assembling a way in which they would immediately win as people died and then they executed that plan and that that's a real thing that happens you know you think someone's doing nothing and that's because they're sitting there with the combo and protection in their hand they don't need to take game actions. They don't need to act in an aggressive manner whatsoever. And when you go to attack them, they say, I'm doing nothing. I have no permanence. I got three cards in hand. And like, that is the biggest crock of bullshit. <laughs> it, you, know, you need to know what kind of deck they're playing and wonder, is there a chance that, you know, the minute I try to make a move to, to remove the, the rule of all player, they have it. They're going to stop me and go off on their turn. Right. And, and people have a hard time assessing that. And it is a hard thing. It's, it's hidden information, but it's like, you really need to consider it. You can do I, my, my heuristic is if there is a deck that's blue and black at the table, they are the first to die. <laughs> yes, I, I, I agree. Blue decks have to die. If you want uh, to remove the rule of Specifically blue black decks, because they're the ones that can immediately, once the rule of law is gone, just go, all right, Thoracle console, and then the game's over. And yep. so for me, it's whenever I'm sitting at a table and a rule of law comes down and I'm not on the rule of law, I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm going, I'm like going straight after the blue black deck. I, I constantly repeat that information. This player has two blue mana and one black mana. Do you want them to do Oracle console? doesn't matter how many cards they have in the hand. It doesn't matter what information well, we they have. Need our two if cards there in. are two unknown cards and they have that mana, you need to consider it. You need to consider it all the time. And don't just kill me and pass the turn to them. Don't kill me with no protection for you going off. 
Like they need so little resources. They need no life. They can just do it. So you have to be aware. Just kill the person who can do it. Just get them out of the game. Charles wanted to get a word in. (laughs) Oh, I have a very discreet calculus when it comes to these types of board state. Uh, when you look at a player who's not doing anything and they're saying that I'm not doing anything, I, it's almost like uh, there's a computer running in my head uh, because you want to do a comparative analysis of all of all four nodes in the system, four nodes being all four players, right? Uh, you can say that node A, you know, has performed, you know, action A, B, C, D, or whatever, right? Uh, or node node B has performed one, two, three, four, five. I realized I was using, I was mixing up my alphanumeric uh, descriptors, but like node C is performing, you know, uh, four, five, six, seven, eight. Uh, and but but let's let's revisit the circle again, and we say that node C doesn't do anything; they just pass a turn. They didn't even play a land, right? Uh, or maybe they did play a land to reveal that their card draw was a dud, right? They're like, this was the card that I drew for a turn. It's a land. Don't hit me, right? And and you on your turn, uh, if you're on a combat-based strategy, uh, and this is something that I want to point out, not every, stacks is, not every stacks deck is going to be playing on combat. Some stacks decks will win off of some infinite combo in combat, but that's not necessarily just grinding you out. That's them just playing Zealous Conscripts plus a kiki-jiki or some variation of that line to winning. Uh, and you have to keep that in mind. But let's say that, that, that they are just trying to get in some incremental advantage by putting down some life total numbers, right? You're that player and you have to now make this type of assessment about who should I be, who should I be attacking? You know, node C is telling you, don't hit me. I did nothing last turn, right? But then you want to evaluate node A and node B. And if node C... You know, and if it comes out that Node C still has the higher qualitative uh, action economy and advantage in board state over Node A and B, even though A and B did something last turn, you still probably want to apply pressure to Node C then, right? Uh, and this is like very abstracted, right? It could Node C could be playing like another stack deck. Node C could be doing something else, but you want to keep in mind about uh, pr- player productivity. And you want, and you don't want to put it into a vacuum because the one thing that a lot of players will tell you when you attack them, right? And if you lose because you made the wrong attack, they'll say, well, such and so was doing this while you were attacking me. And this is the same retrospective thinking that I'm asking you to think about when you're playing a game with all three players, do not put yourself in a position where they could say, well, such and so was doing this while you were doing that. Because at least give yourself a defensible argument to say, yes, they were doing that, but you were still doing more, right? I think it's just more important to consider lines, right? It's a thing that if you watch people playing other formats, like streamers, they walk through the lines. My opponent could do this. If I take this action, these are the ways their deck has to kill me next turn if I take this action. You need to do that. And there are decks where if they have three cards in their hand, there is a huge number of scenarios in which they beat you on the following turn. And like, it doesn't matter if they have no permanence in play. It doesn't matter if they just showed you they drew a land. That, that doesn't change the number of ways in which they can win the game. And that's all that really matters. And, and so if you see a rule of all player sitting on the board with their stacks pieces and you feel I should kill them, think what's more likely they kill me 
or I get killed by these other opponents? What are the avenues to me losing? And almost always it's going to be, I kill the rule of law player. And then there's so many ways everyone else wins. Just so many more ways. The number of ways in which two people can beat you is almost always larger than the ways one person can beat you. So like it, it, it's almost never the right decision to go from four players down to three, having killed the stack player. Go you guys have all these, these complicated heuristics and I'm just sitting there going, all right, who's got blue and black in there? Color. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, okay. the thing is, blue and black is like automatically gives you so many ideas about what lines are available to them. Right? right. Like right off the back. And that's why it's your heuristic, you know, blue and black decks have an incredible number of lines. It gets trickier when people are on like, weird fringe decks because now you right. have to like really consider what lines they have cobble raising his hand that heuristic does not apply when it's a, a cobble pot blue black deck because uh, as you've seen on our channel not all cobble pot blue black decks play thoracle console yeah i want to hear cobble pot like what are your thoughts about uh engaging uh in these pod structures so it largely depends on the archetype of the deck that you're running. Um, a lot of the conversation that we've had so far has been implicitly from the perspective of a deck that is not a stacks deck that's playing against a rule of law deck and how it makes its decisions. If you are a rule of law deck playing against a rule of law deck, then a lot of those decisions are different mm -hmm. because th the presumptions that you show up to the table with are actually symmetric. So the, the expectation when you're the only person who's the stacks player and the other three players are not, they have an expectation of high economy, you know, uh, high velocity. And you have a presumption expectation around low economy and low productivity and when somebody else has the same presumption as you then it actually becomes more of a collaborative experience rather than a um solo kind of you know me against the three players it's well this player has played a rule of law i will play I, I can play a rule of law, but I will play a null rod. And then that player plays a Draneth Magistrate. And then I will play, you know, the right. Chalice of the Void. And it, it, it becomes a situation where you're both exploiting the same vector of the game dynamic. And rather than trying to just kind of mindlessly or, you know, by rote going through the lines that you would normally go through, you adapt instead because now, first of all, it's it's not remove one one rule of law player. There's two rule of law players. So Yeah, the calculus gets harder the more stack stacks are at the table. It does. <laughs> so it exponentially exacerbates itself. Um think about it this way. If in a one v one scenario, right? Like say that someone plays rule of law on turn two with some sort of accelerant, right? You can expect that that is all that they're going to do on their turn. But if suddenly they play rule of law plus Tony Science plus a Torpor Orb, right? Uh, then they've you, cheated. 
Yeah, then, then, <laughs> then they cheated, right? Exactly, because it feels because you feel like because you feel like they're cheating. But think about it this way: uh, you are the one combo player at the table, and then you pass a turn to to player A. Player A plays Rule of Law. Player B plays Stony Silence. Player C plays Torpor Orb. That is. That is what it's like. A nightmare it's, scenario. <laughs> yeah, that is that is that is what it's like. Where you suddenly realize that your qualitative turns are now in competition with three decks that are operating on the same axis. Right. Right. When they're all playing the same plan. Right. It's similar. It's it, it's it's oddly enough. It's like the pendulum swings both ways. Like people used to talk about, like, uh, how's one you know rule of law deck going to deal with three Adnos decks? Now the other question. Now the pendulum swings the other way. Is like, what is one Adnos deck going to do against three rule of law decks? Right. The one right. important thing. Right. That's what it's going to do. <laughs> if you are a rule of law or stack deck playing in a pod with other rule of law or stack decks, you know there is this collaborative thing of like we're all going to gunk up the board together. But you actually need to be very clever about how you divert from that path towards the way you're going to win. And so, for example, I love when I am playing Heliod and the other stack stack is Timna Kamal. Why do I love that? Because their whole deck is built around playing stacks pieces every turn. And while I can help them with that, I can also pivot to just looking for my way to get to Ballista and like let them do my job for me. It's right. like they're casting spells for me. And so like you need to play in a clever way in which they feel like you're collaborating, but you're secretly moving towards, you know, your your way to win. And that can get tricky, you know, if you know, when it's two Heliod decks, it's super tricky. Cause you know, <laughs> I know I can see them move for their gun, right? That yeah. it's like a it's like a a showdown. But um yeah. when they when it's another deck, like there are ways to learn how to play your deck so people don't know when you're going for it. And I think a lot of the turbo decks, when they're in these scenarios, some of the better turbo players are really good for not making it look like they're going for it when they're going for it, mm-hmm. right? Like they're slowly sculpting their way to win the game and no one knows. And and that is like a an incredible feat, but people do it. I mean, it's what poker players are really good for at, um, what's his name? Uh, John Finkel. Yeah, is is also really good with that uh, classic Magic Pro player uh, who plays poker. But it, I think it's also interesting is because like um, Michael's Heliod deck, you know, highlights the thing that I was saying earlier that not every stacks deck is necessarily going to be on the combat plan. Every deck can play towards some modicum of combat, but you have to keep in mind that like just because you're playing a stacks board game, don't expect the game is just going to play out in some combat. Uh, fashion it can still end abruptly especially for s- some stacks decks that are designed to come packaged with a combo piece that can combo through that stacks and mm-hmm. you can see like you can have games where someone's like oh i'm going to play this ranger captain of aos i'm going to use it to stop someone else from comboing off and winning when really it's i'm going to silence everyone on my turn and then you know win with my with mm-hmm. my line exactly right and it's the same type of deceptive ploy that like you see with blue players where they draw cards, put them in their hand and, you know, you cast a spell and they're like, it resolves when you thought that they were going to counter it only to realize like, oh, no, they're they're going to just try to win on their turn now. And they're saving the counter spell to protect their line. Right. Yeah. Whenever any, you know, turbo player tells me 
I need to let them draw cards so, so that they can find answers to another opponent. I'm always like, you Bullshit. don't play answers. Bullshit. <laughs> but, but it's a real thing because, you know, there are always these dual function cards. Like someone might let your ranger captain resolve because they do want an onboard silence so that this other person can't go off. And like, if you really convince them like, oh, there's that oof in play. I can't, I can't go off the walking ballista anyways, while you secretly have like a swords in your hand. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, someone might let it happen because it sounds like you're collaborating and it sounds like you can't really use it in any way outside of a stacks effect. Um, it's the same thing with Paladin class. I have leveled up Paladin class and people thought I'm going on the, the combat offensive. I'm actually making walking ballista cheaper. Mm-hmm. So the next turn I can... Just cast so I it, can right? Cast it for and, free. and put the count yeah, on it and go. Yeah, like like there's so many there's so many ways in which you can take your cards and make them look like they're doing one thing when they're doing another, and that's really important, especially when there's these multiple stack stacks. Because like everyone needs to think you're committing to the 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 standard strategy for fighting in a multi stacks pod, but you really need to be moving towards a win con. Uh, that no one sees coming. An underlying key to all of this that is generally known, but, you know, is worthy of of saying explicitly is stacks is very difficult to play because it requires you (laughs) to have studied up on what it is that all of the other lists could be doing. To anticipate their lines, you need to be familiar with the potential of what it is that others can be doing. So when someone's playing Kenrith stacks versus Derevi stacks versus um, Heliod, Heliod yeah. you know, it, each of those has a, you know, a different combo finish or multiple different combo finishes. And if you have awareness and knowledge of how it is that they assemble their apparatus and execute it, then you can understand how to maybe, uh, you know, shove that off before it, it, it starts in a proactive way. And the only way to do that is to, is to have learned about those decks. And yes, sometimes you're going to have some random fringe that you've never seen before, but you got to look at the colors and look at the archetype and try to intuit what it is that they could possibly be doing and cover your bases as best you can. Michael and I talk about this in a previous episode about how to be a better player. Uh, one of the best advice that I could give for someone is take up a pre-con, don't make any changes to it and play it with other people who are also playing with pre-cons because uh, you just have to really understand the fundamentals, right? Like you can't, I think sometimes players tend to uh, conflate the value of a card by its high impact from watching video gameplay videos and uh, hearing other people hype about a card. Just play the card in the abstract, you know, see its floor, see its ceiling, understand its interactions and lines, and just think about it with a really level-headed eye, right? Yes, Doss's Oracle is really powerful, Oracle consultation, two card combo can happen almost immediately, anywhere, anytime. But if you fixate too much about what the card, what that combo is doing, you're not focusing enough about 
what the card's functionalities are and how do you play to disrupt that, mm-hmm. right? Like I've seen people get got simply off of someone playing endurance, right? They're like, oh, you're not running Torpor Orbital. Here's a Thoracle. And it's like, I'm just going to put your graveyard back into your deck. And they're like, oh, you know, whereas someone's like, oh, well, here's a demand consultation. I excel everything and there's not enough cards in my graveyard. I'm going to win with Thoracle here because they know Joke's on way. you. I played it. <laughs> this reminds me of one time I was playing against a certain mono white player. Oh, this story. When I had the Oracle tainted pact in hand and started the turn out by casting training grounds to the surprise of several of the people in the pod, but not the surprise of Mr. Michael Levine. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I don't know. Do you want to tell that story? Well, I mean, the way that I know the way you won that game, um, how do you want to fit the, the training grounds into the story? Because the part that always sticks to me happens when the Adnaz is cast later in that turn cycle. Where, right. You were representing, <laughs> oh my goodness, what was the interaction that you had? Was, this, was so it silence? Were, were, what text were you guys on? I'm assuming so, Michael's on Heliod. Yeah. yeah. I was on. Um, uh, tightrope. Yeah, this is the semifinals of um, Marchesa, I think, two years ago. And so someone playing a Turbo E deck who goes before me in turn order casts an Adnaz. And this is why you should always talk with the table before you act, because I immediately put a silence on the stack, being like, no, you're not main phase Nazing and winning. And who was very happy about this? Cobblepot, who had been making it seem like he had nothing for quite a few turns. So then on my turn, I go, I need to get everyone to calm down. I'm going to play this Aethershorn Cannonist. And Cobblepot goes, cool. End of my turn, Tainted Pack to, I think, two cards in library mm-hmm. or one card in library. Yeah, one card. One card. Main phase is his Oracle. And... You know, he got me to exhaust my silence. He had a counter spell, if I remember correctly. You had a counter in hand for the Adnaz, but you just let me get ahead of myself because I was next in turn order. I didn't say what I learned to do now is say bully the uh, table, bully the (laughs) table. Like, because, you know, if you're the first, it sucks. Everyone expects you to have something. Great thing about playing mono white is that there's so few cards you could have that everyone. Just as soon as you don't have it. As soon as you don't have it. But you (laughs) can't just be like, hey, let everyone, I'm going to show everyone my silence. Um, And two, that like, that was the first time someone did the two, the two turn Oracle combo to me, where they actually did add Nas at the end of a turn and then Oracle with one spell on their turn. And now I constantly, constantly tell people, hey, there's a rule. Just because there's a rule play, of law doesn't mean that they can still do it. And everyone's like, no, no one's going to do that. I was like, Cobblepot did it to me in the semifinals. People will do this. And I've seen it happen a couple more times where no one believed me. And then someone did it. And everyone's like, that's crazy. It's like, no, it's a line that's really good. It's a really good that's an line. old school. That's a it's old an old school, school line. 
It is an yeah. old school line, and it's really funny it's because uh, I run Gaia Reach Sanitarium in my deck, and so my opponent's like, why are you running this card? Like, it, It's a free card draw for everyone else, and it's just nets neutral for you, and I had a game where someone tried to do that same maneuver and left uh, one card left in their deck, so they drew for the turn, and I, as soon as they drew for their turn, I activated Gaia Reach Sanitarium to kill them. This well, is great. always... <laughs> This is always why um, in Rector Fit, whenever I get the breakfast combo out, I always stop at like <laughs> two cards in the library because yeah. there's like you can't get got at that point. Yeah, you you don't you don't want it, it was a very humiliating thing for my opponent because it was public information, but he didn't see the line. And this is once again why I, I point out like this is a, just a card in abstract. It's 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 neither good nor bad. Like if you try to associate value to it, you're you're going to divorce yourself from the reason for how it can be used, and you're going and to find your yeah. For for what it's worth, to go in the complete opposite direction of what you were just saying, there was a comment on our bands video where uh, somebody was saying, "Why would you ban the worst demonic consultation?" This example is why tainted pact is. <laughs> So much better than the <laughs> consultation. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah. just to bring it back around, the 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 thing that I was wanting to draw attention to was that the previous turn, while I still had the combo in hand, I played a training grounds with no Thrasios in play, I believe, and the point of that was because I was expecting that Michael was going to remove my. Because I was going to have to string the uh, Tainted Pact and the Oracle across two turns. Oh, yeah, this is true. I was expecting that he was going to have removal. And I think you did have removal. I did have removal. The Oracle. And I explained but, to everyone they needed to get removal because you'd have, they're like, you had devotion. There was like nothing we could do. If you left a card in your library, you still had devotion one when Oracle is trigger resolved. Right. And that yeah. was the reason for playing the training grounds the previous turn. It was anticipating that somebody can interact in a certain way. And that is something that when you're playing a rule of law deck, or I mean, really, when you're playing any deck, you need to be thinking about how can people disrupt this? What is right. it that you can do to shore up your chances of being able to complete the line that you're trying to play? Yep. Well, in this yeah, you left, left two cards in play with Tainted Pack. You drew one for the turn and you had exactly one left. Yeah. So that you could definitely not die. You wouldn't deck yourself. No one could make you deck yourself, but you also had the devotion. Oh, it was such a good line. Yeah. I, I complain about this it is, so often. This is the stuff tails really nicely into our final point here of how do we threat assess a board with a rule of law in play? And I think the story kind of highlights uh this sort of uh, interaction, right? Of how do you threat assess? How do you use these spell slots uh, when there is a rule of law in play? So, you know, Charles, you know, you being, I'm going to throw it to you here of, you know, how is it that you're kind of trying to assess, you know, as the non-rule of law player, the threats on the board when there is a rule of law on the board? Uh I'm going to go like my default is to not immediately get rid of rule of law. Uh, unless if like I have to look at my hand, it's a really contextual thing depending on the deck that I'm playing. So if I was like playing like some fast combo deck, uh, 
sometimes I might not care about there being a rule of law. Uh, there's a bit of a prisoner's dilemma that happens when there's a rule of law out. Uh, and what I mean by that is that I don't want to be the first person to commit my resources to getting rid of a rule of law and then trying to win because that just puts me at a disadvantage already. It's like a handicap, right? For the privilege of being able to play without rule of law, you have to get rid of one card uh, that you could have used to protect your your line or to interact or engage with someone else. Uh, and, and that could be very damning when it suddenly becomes two against one or three against one. Um, sometimes, uh, when you are in the position of power and you can remove something or attack someone, uh, the, the thing that you, it, the thing that you want to consider is, well, what am I trying to do? Sometimes doing nothing is actually the correct course of action. Like I talk about action economy and one of the things earlier, and one of the things that I, that, that I mentioned is like the difference between quantitative and qualitative action economy. Sometimes taking no action is in itself a qualitative action economy because uh, uh, you really have to have the forethought of how the rest of the turns are going to move. If someone else is looks like they're getting further ahead because they are going under the rule of law, they are committing a lot of qualitative action economy. You have to ask yourself, does this matter to me? If I'm getting rid of the rule of law later and I'm going to win, it doesn't matter, right? Uh, if they are putting stuff out in a, because say that you're playing with multiple stack decks now, right? Someone else has the rule of law and you care about that, but someone else has the Sanctum Prelate and you actually care about the number that they named on the Sanctum Prelate. So the rule of law is your priority, but you also now have the Sanctum Prelate to worry about. There's a lot to, to assess in that type of situation. And you kind of want to be methodical about that, right? Kind of like what Michael said, like you kind of want to be uh, concealing about your intent uh, and you can systematically remove things if you're not being pressured to do anything, right? If you are being pressured, then you want to take alternate courses at de-escalating de that pressure. So your threat assessment would be pivoted towards de-escalation. Right. Something to add to that would be once, and, and like I said earlier, I feel like it's almost always wrong to remove the rule of law if you're not going to immediately win because of that resource disparity that you introduce when you remove the rule of law. Um, but also because it's actually often the right call to protect the rule of law. Mm -hmm. If, if you, if somebody is generating more card advantage than you, or has assembled part of what you know to be one of their engines or win cons, and you know that all that they need is an open window, you can, and let, let's, let's suppose that player then casts removal on the rule of law. You can say, oh, great, that rule of law is going to be gone. I'll be able to do my thing. And then that person has three counter spells to back up their win or you can say nope i'm not going to let you remove that rule of law now they can't follow it up with anything mm -hmm. and the rule of law stays in place and basically the rule of law has become like a super counter spell it turns your counter spells kind of like into dovin's vetoes you know right or it's sort of like trick bind for the player mm -hmm. <laughs> like yeah uh, it basically silences them and that 
is a very powerful effect when you know that you can't immediately win on that spot. If you can't immediately win and somebody else is trying to remove the rule of law, that's because they can immediately win. Mm -hmm. And if you're not in a position to fight the rest of the table off until it gets back to you and you can win, then you should actually protect the rule of law because it's doing work for you, holding off the other players from winning. Right. It's the thing that I yell about in games the most whenever anyone targets the rule of law with removal is, does anyone have a way to protect this? Because if it's gone, this person could win. But then there's the nuance, the argument of you are, if you don't protect this, it likely means you're trying to go off. So like getting everyone on the same page that if no one protects it going off, that means all of you think you can go off. Like can go off, right? If no one protects the removal of the rule of law, everyone seems to think they're going to win if it's removed, which is bad for everyone still, because like now right. everyone knows it's just a of a race. If someone and is you're, willing, and now you're at the disadvantage of turn order in that yeah. situation. Yeah. So I will, you know, if everyone's like, I don't have anything, I'll be like, all right, let's just think about this. You come after me in turn order. Do you think it's going to get to you and you're going to be able to win? Because you may be bluffing right now and it's really not a good idea to hope that it gets to you, right? Yeah. Like it's not a good idea. Um, and you really need to talk about these things because I don't know. I've just had so many disappointing games where someone's just like, I don't want to protect it. Rule of law hurts me. It's like, you know what really hurts you? Losing the game. Losing the game <laughs> hurts so much. Right? If only we can fill our stomachs with hope. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it doesn't really suffice very easily. I, uh, I, I think I think it's uh, it, it's it's interesting with with some of that. I think that some players think that they can play a better game without rule of law out, right? And uh, the more players who are in agreement with that, the more the 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 scale kind of tips towards that place. As a player who plays rule of law, sometimes like I find it that there's no point in arguing. To someone who thinks like that, uh, I think like, and this is the reason why I tell players like you have to think of a game beyond just a game of rule of law, uh, and why I kind of favored the layered stacks approach over just playing rule of law. I can play something innocuous like a blind obedience for most players, like especially like not the experienced ones. Like you play a blind obedience and they're like, oh well, it's not a rule of law. I'm fine, right? And then and then they play like dockside extortionists and Emil, and then they're like. Oh wait, this doesn't work, right? Or yeah. there's a Glenhorn Buccaneer, and then they're like, "Oh well, it comes away tapped, but you know, I'll kill you next turn, right?" And then they try to swing, and the treasures come into play tapped, and they're like, "Oh," and then, and then you just block and kill Buccaneer, and you're like, "I feel really bad now." That's why I want eleven <laughs> blind obediences, like I said before. That card <laughs> yeah. looks like an annoyance, and it's actually a very heavy stacks piece in our format, and yeah. it's a win con, and it's, it's also, a win con. Yeah. Oh my god. The other day, I drained people for so much life. And you know what's great as a Heliod player? The reason why you can't race a Heliod player is because if I can gain three life off of all my spells and pump all my creatures while you're stuck with your coming to play tapped artifact ramp, I'm going to win. I'm going to, I'm always going to win. I played you know? someone's Oswald deck and had the Book of Exalted Deeds in it. And, you know, I played it and everyone else like freaked out. Oh, he's going to put it on his man land. And I didn't have one out at the time. And I told them, 
I'm not going to put it on a main lane. I'm never going to activate this ability. And people are like, wait, what? And, and they took my word for it, right? Because I, I tend to be a very honest magic player. And uh, instead, I just drained everyone with blind obedience and got a 3-3 angel at every turn. And that's why I love that card in Heliod too. <laughs> People don't understand a three-three angel every turn is quite aggressive in a rule of law situation. Yeah. And people see it as, oh no, he's gonna make his moon of all into a platinum angel that we can't remove. And it's like, no, I'm gonna swing at you with three three threes every turn and mm-hmm. have fun dealing with that when I gain nine life each turn. Um so it's like the inverse of blind obedience. Blind obedience, people always think it's not that scary until it is. The Book of Exalted Deeds looks really scary. And then you realize it's like medium scary because half the time it's an aggro, yeah. an aggro mm-hmm. card. Once again, you don't want to conflate the hype of a card to its actual contextual value when you're playing in the game. Because right. something like, like I said earlier, in that one casual game, like something like an Urtai Wizard Adept will look like so much more fearsome. When someone plays that rule of law, because now you have your own like, you know, mini uh, chalice avoid or counterbalance effect going on uh, and, and your opponents are like, I, I wow. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 and there's, and there's certain functional play patterns too. Like one of the things that comes to my mind is uh, when, and this is now from the perspective of someone playing stacks, right? If you're playing stacks against other rule of law decks uh, and you're doing this type of threat assessment, uh, we talk about how sax players like to collaborate, but you have to be careful about that collaboration because, you know, they might come out from under you. One of the things is that if they are doing that and you're doing that type of threat assessment, you're like, I think this person's up to no good or uh, this person who's playing with Noda, you know, I just can't let them flip that many cards over from right. their deck. Right. Like even if they they are on the same game plan as I am, they are moving way faster than I am. Right. Yeah, I will never collaborate with a Winota player. <laughs> I want it to be known if you play Winota against me, I'm not collaborating. <laughs> well, like this, it this never is never ends well for anybody. No. Yeah. For me playing layered stacks, I have ways against Winota other than just playing on rule of law. Like I, I remember the I remember on like the Team Turn Three stream where where Sick Robot was like, Don't play Rule of Law. And I was like, I won't play Rule of Law this game. And he's like, oh, thank God, it won't be a two hour game then. Game goes on for three hours, by the way. And not a single <laughs> rule of law was played. Right. And, and it was it was just more or less like a demonstration that like I can play a grindy game with or without rule of law. And if you remove my rule of law, I will play on a different axis entirely because I built a deck that was equipped to do that. I mean, that was like the benefit of having a layered stacks approach. Uh, and because it really leverages on your game analysis and card analysis skills of looking at the context, looking at players' play patterns, looking at, you know, and having a predictive model of what the next three turns are going to look like, and then playing that. And each play that you're doing is creating the next predictive model for the three turns. In like, you know, AI, this would be something like an alpha beta pruning that you're doing. Uh, So one thing that I had with... Uh, in one game where it was like, you know, someone was playing a rule of law deck. There were two other combo decks and I decided to kill the rule of law player. And, and they were like, why would you do that? We are, we are rule of law buddies. Right. And, <laughs> and one of the, and one of the things that I pointed out is that I have three rule of law effects in play now. Right. I think I'm fine. And I have other sufficient stacks pieces. You are actually the only person who is thriving in this board state. Once again, this goes back to like my node analysis, right? Yes. Uh, like 
you are currently helping me, but I am now at this point where I can, where I believe I can sufficiently carry through the rest of the game without you. Uh, and it isn't just simply because, you know, I I'm fine with my stacks pieces as well. I had to evaluate the other two players and being a low enough life total and being at such a huge resource disadvantage that, that if they, if both of them collaborated against me, it would be a one V one. And I'm okay with that. This is also a thing that you want to think about. Cause I told this actually to like an Adnos player when we were playing a game that he was like, I can't do anything. And I told him you have an Adnos in hand. Right. And it's like, and it's like, yeah, and it's like then Adnos, your turn comes, um, my, my turn comes after your turn. Right. Uh, main phase, uh, like, at the end of uh, at the end of my turn, you can just main fit. You could just add Nos, right, and find yourself like some type of removal spell. Remove the rule of law, right. At the end of the last player's turn, right. Like the the thing is that in the same way that I brought up about the scenario where someone cheats out both rule of law, torpor orb, and uh, stony silence. You, you realize that you can spread your action economy across other turns. You can use your spells across other players' turns as well, right? And when you do threat assessments like that, you want to take into effect those types of contributions that could happen, right? Like, you don't want to necessarily isolate it to what is a player going to do on their turn, but what is everybody going to do on a given player's turn, right? Uh, in, in, uh, in, like, artificial intelligence and with, like, if you ever built a, an AI pack man game they uh one of the, one of the predictors is that they don't look at you know where pac-man or the ghost is going to be they actually look at the entire grid of the board when you do like a chess uh algorithm like an a star algorithm it's the same thing as well they look at the entire chess board they're not looking at any single individual piece and so you want to do that when you're doing that type of threat assessment analysis uh i recall like there was this one game where it was I'm sorry. Where, where, where there was a, also like I had a rule of law out and I decided to kill another player. But before I killed him, I played a grand abolisher. Right. And the reason why this was important was that I by eliminating the other player, uh, there was one other player who had a seaborn muse and I couldn't really beat the seaborn muse player and the seaborn and the other players like, what are you? Why are you killing me? There's a guy with a seaborn muse. I was like, yeah, but I'm trying to win and I'm close to winning right now. And you're dead weight to me. And they're like, yeah, but this other person is going to win with Seaborn Muse because they're going to untap like, you know, three yeah, but turns. I'm taking away their actions. Yeah, I'm taking away an extra turn from the Seaborn Muse player. It's like, yeah, but you're still not stopping them. I'm also taking away f- any actions on my turn as well because I now have a Granite Balsher mm-hmm. that you let resolve. Right. And players don't necessarily think about that type of turn economy when you do something like that. When you do that type of threat assessment, you want to leverage all of those types of variables. It sounds overwhelming. It is. I, <laughs> <laughs> it's easy to get wrong. Yeah, it's yeah. very easy to get wrong. And you can have really heated arguments with very good players about if what they did was a mistake or not. Um, there are some managers that are probably more right than others, but often there's so much probability baked into it. And we're talking about very small differences in the probability of one outcome versus the other. Mm-hmm. It's what makes the game really fun though, uh, is to have these types of retrospectives, right? And you you have to have good reason though. You can talk about your reasoning, you can have a discussion about it and you play again and you want to learn from every mistake that you did wrong, right? You want to try different lines of play patterns and study how things work differently. And 
and your opponents should also evolve from this. Like one of the worst case scenarios is when you play against opponents who literally repeat the same matches over and over and you're like, I'm just going to continue punishing you until you change your play pattern. Right. Well, this has been quite the great discussion and uh, it's really awesome to get to hear all of your different takes um, on rule of law because it's it's something that especially now in the current metagame we're really kind of having to reckon with on a large scale right uh it's no longer a fringe uh you know uh, deck archetype i mean it's very front and center uh in the in the metagame right now um so that it's great to have this conversation and kind of figure out how to play it, how to get around it, all those different things. But uh, I appreciate you guys uh, coming on. And Michael, I mean, you're you're joining. We, we talked about this with Ian the other day. You're joining the Sculpty family, right? You know, you're the yes. part of the mono white guys. I'll be here to talk about more white related magic. In the future. <laughs> Crazy. It doesn't sound very inclusive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I, I considered the name in retrospect the other day and I was like, this could be interesting. This, this, was, this certainly won't come back to bite us in any way. Uh, the other the other <laughs> idea of a proposed name that I had with another group was calling ourselves the planeswalkers, but you spell planes like the actual land planes. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but uh, I don't know. Mono white guys. Uh, I, I mean, that, that 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 that's that was the name that I I guess labeled myself. It actually came from playing with power because they're like, hey, it's Charles, the mono white guy. Uh, <laughs> to everyone's surprise, of me not actually being white. <laughs> What's Callahan's moniker? Chaos. Um. <laughs> Uh, well, that about wraps things up for us here today. Uh, just a reminder that you can uh, follow us over on Twitter at Sculpty Boys, S-C-U-L-P-T-Y-B-O-I-S. Or uh, if you just want the easy way of doing it, just there's direct link to our in our link tree in the description below. Want to also give an extra shout out to all of our patrons who help keep the lights on. If you too would like to become a patron, get early access to some of our episodes, you can head on over to patreon.com forward slash the mind sculptors or check out the link in the description. Thank Wow. Thank you again to everyone for joining us today here on the mind sculptors and from all of us here at the mind sculptors and the model white guys, I'm Callahan and we'll see you next time. I'm in line with the stars. I'm in sync with the earth. Ten toes deep, flower child from the turf. I never switch sides. Like even when I die, I'm a ride for the squad. Let our ties in the hearse. I've been on a vibe kind of hard to describe. I'm in between. I'm good and it's fine, but I'm tired of the grind. Then I come alive in the night to realize I'm in the middle with a time of my life. I never so packed for the stack. Never lied on the back. Got a bag from the way that I write it. Queen looking Tyson. Do that I survive doing 80 to the house. Then I hit it to the sky. Change haters on a tirade. Life on this fast route, yeah. Turn thoughts to a